0: Welcome to the Without a Hitch podcast, episode 5, Smoko. For those listeners for whom the term smoko is not familiar, smoko means a work break. This week we're going to hear a selection of stories about work and then finish a quick set of hypotheses as to why people are always in that Google Doc you're working in. If you have to use Google Docs for work, you'll understand. Now a quick side note before we um, carry on, uh, in the background you might hear some chickens Um, I'm not broadcasting from a farm but we do have chickens I thought I'd try and edit them out but I'll just leave them there for a little bit of flavor so without a hitch podcast guest starring a bunch of chickens laying some eggs now these are some stories from my early in my work life and I must confess I was a terrible worker I was unreliable I didn't care enough and I was quick to quit and move on to the next thing But it was valuable to do things that I didn't like to help me better work out what I did like in the end. And although this lesson took a while to sink in, I did eventually realise you need to stick around for a bit to really experience or understand a job. In the early 2000s, I moved to Whanganui to go to the Whanganui Design School. And I did go for a while, I, uh, I went there for a few weeks but I changed my mind, I quit, I went back, I, I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to do so in the end I did drop out um, and I continued to live in Wanganui because I was surrounded by really creative people, a lot of friends and it was it was a whole lot of fun. I did various jobs and bits and pieces and this next story is about One of the jobs that I did, which was the night shift, uh, cleaning various buildings around Wanganui and where that took me. CSI Wanganui I was riding the zeitgeist. I'd recently dropped out of the Wanganui School of Design, but was still living amongst the artists and designers toiling away at their craft with a fervour you could warm your hands over. Part of a movement without having to move. My flat was above a fish and chip shop on the main drag. My window looked across an alleyway at the wall of the movie theatre next door. I could practically reach out and touch those mossy bricks. Smoke from the smoker downstairs would drift through our ratty washing line. Everything ended up smelling a little fishy. I toiled at wondering what to do next. Motivated by my industrious, creative friends, yet also enamoured of doing very little. I was constantly interrupted by the inconvenient question of money. My mum recommended a night cleaning job that came up. This job wasn't really part of the zeitgeist, but it would pay in real dollars. At least I was good at cleaning. The vacuum was my instrument of choice. There was art in massaging all the carpet fibres into parallel rows, unsullied by a single footfall. Our inner-city night-cleaning junket started at the bank. It was eerily quiet. All the transactions had turned in for the night. Danny, the boss, materialised next to me. He was so light-footed and soft-spoken, he might have been part vapour. Just the spots that need it, he said. He watched my conventional vacuum motion sweeping up a column of carpet and back again, but shook his head. Watch, he said. He scanned the floor, spotted a single pencil shaving, sucked it up with the nozzle, and gave me the thumbs up. We were here to give the impression of cleaning. To evict an offending flake of pastry Janella, the bank manager, had dropped scoffing a pie at her desk. This cleaning philosophy would make us faster, Danny implied. You had to read between the lines. He called it spot cleaning. I called it not cleaning. Toilets were the exception. When Danny demonstrated how to clean the toilet, as though I'd never done it before, he did it properly. Brush, cleaner and everything. At the doctor's clinic, we merely touched up any obvious desk dust. Then we moved on to a medical lab, a place thick with biological smells. I would barely permit myself to breathe. There we would lug around a pail with a foot-operated ringer and slosh about patches of floor with a mop resembling a knot of dirty, overcooked noodles. My mind would wander in the 2am quiet. I imagined a forensic team for CSI Wanganui, examining our work and reporting back to the boss. It appears that they've been brewing a powerful soup of bacterial colonies on the floor itself. We had to empty these monstrous black rubbish bags into skip bins out the back of the lab. I worried about getting stabbed by a syringe through the plastic, thereby transforming into a zombie and initiating the apocalypse. It would be a tragedy for such a thing to happen for the sake of this sort of cleaning job. The courthouse was the last destination on the nightly roster. There were so many wooden banisters I wanted to polish if I could just have the time or the cleaning products. By this point we'd be running so low on disinfectant Danny would set to diluting the rest with water to some absurdest homeopathic concentration. Deep in the bowels of the courthouse were the cells. Basically a dungeon with concrete walls and a lidless stainless steel toilet. Danny whispered that sometimes disgruntled detainees adorned the cell walls with whatever they had available. Let me know if you ever need help, he said. I was unnerved by what was left unsaid. And so it went. Spot cleaning by night, in bed by day. Skin infused with the smell of watery disinfectant haunted by an outrageous lack of rigour. It wasn't quite the superhero backstory I'd imagined for myself. One morning back at the flat, I accidentally knocked my flatmate's hoop earring into the toilet bowl. It sank, shiny against the old browned porcelain. I immediately reached in and scooped it up, fingernails scraping on the bottom. I rinsed the earring and put it back next to the toothpaste. Then I looked at my hand. I had become someone who would dip his hand into a toilet without hesitating. A few weeks later, I descended the courthouse stairs to the cells and paused at the threshold. Danny materialised beside me. We looked at the walls, smeared with brown. I covered my face with a hand. Danny made eye contact and signalled to me with a nod, I'll take this one, mate. He could tell the protégé was not ready to tackle the horror. At the end of the night, Danny came up the stairs looking weather-beaten. We gave each other another nod. This one meant, maybe I'll see you around, but probably not. I could claim the high ground and say that I left because I never even got to do an average job well. The great injustice of it a mark on my honour as a vacuum-cleaning maestro. The reality was, though, that I just didn't care enough about this gig to willingly deal with the horror. Also, while being a cleaner appeared to be making me less clean, I decided I'd rather be on the bones of my ass again. I wasn't unemployed for long, though. I moved on to a service station where I would clean windscreens reconstitute frozen pies and pour random quantities of oil into steaming car engines. Over the Christmas holidays in between university semesters one year, I went to stay in Tauranga with my dad and went to work on a kiwifruit orchard. Now I thought I'd earn some money, I'd I'd work with dad and my brother, Uh, We'd be outside and we'd have a great time, and I wanted to do something physical, something with my body after all that desk work at university. In the end, neither me nor my brother really enjoyed the experience, and it ended up not being quite what we thought. Here's how it went Evil Little Cacti. This is fruitless. I declare to my fellow pruners, they groan and move further away from me. We spend our days hacking the canopy to let in more sun, which will ripen the fruit. Later, after we're long gone, the fruit will be sweet enough for other people to eat. The beating of my heart is replaced with the rhythm of the loppers. Cut and rusty scrape open, cut and rusty scrape open. Maybe I could get behind this if I at least liked fruit, but alas, they scratch my throat, they chafe and dissolve my skin, and these unholy prickly balls claw their way into my dreams. Every night I'm lost in a tangle of vines, and all I can hear is the leaves shushing and the chop-chop of the loppers. I wake in the dark dawn hours and hope for the pitter-patter of rain. I'll be honest. The gig's really too much for my nascent work ethic. I haven't developed the level of altruism required to prepare Kiwi for for future generations. Yes, I get paid, a little, for my efforts, but to be honest, at this point in my life, meandering through uni, I'd sooner have the time and be dead skint. It's not that I'm lazy. Okay, maybe I am a little bit lazy. Aren't we all? In the hazy heat, my mind wanders to books I read in high school. This is like Z for Zachariah, only instead of trying to escape the utopian valley to the safety of the radioactive wastelands, you'll need to read it for this to make sense, I'm trying to escape the valley of the Kiwi before their sandpapery surfaces grind away my will to live. It's like the day of the Triffids. Only the kiwi fruit are the marauders, not the murderous walking whippy plants, You'll need to read it and tell me how it ends, okay? Kiwi fruit aside, working outdoors is a pleasure. The sharp edges of the early morning, the glint of dew on fence wire, and most divine of all, rain. Rain means renewal, growth, a reprieve from the heat. It also means stopping work, and if it's foretold early enough, the entire day off. Oh, the jubilation. On this particular day, a squall drops, sudden as a slam door. It's a sign, I think, confirming the hopelessness of our efforts to shed some light on these Kiwi. You want sun? Take this. A wall of water. Keep going, grunts the foreman. He is a mustachioed man who seems to have only one dimension. The forward vector of the working day. If he was to have a motto, it would be, not a moment sooner. Smoko? It's 10.15 and not a damn moment sooner. To the foreman, the ticking of the clock is progress, an accumulation of valuable moments. To me, the seconds unravel time. Each is more pointless than the last because they're not taking me anywhere. The time is literally wasting. I'm in the Pink Floyd song, Time, ticking away the moments that make up a dull day, fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way, Fritter is apt. Then the bit that chills me. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. Oh God, I'm definitely not hearing the starting gun out here. A few days ago, the foreman exploded at another of the teenage workers, accusing him of stealing Viagra from his car. The teenager's dad was there, trying not to laugh at the unlikelihood of it. The foreman went purple in the face. I'm not the only one being driven mad by these evil little cacti. The rain thickens. It runs down my wrists, pauses to well in my armpits, then water falls down the rest of my body until it's filling my boots. I am now a water feature. I wonder, does a work ethic require that you like the work, or that you successfully inure yourself to it? I guess it has worth because at least you're doing something. But this doesn't seem enough. In conclusion, I dislike kiwi fruit pruning and I am so lazy. So what might become of me after the vines? A long-term aversion to furriness? Suede is out. I'll be staring clear of the lure. Even a merino singlet will be too close to the bone. We're near up to our knees in water when the foreman relinquishes a grunt, admitting we made down tools for a time. We sidle up to some thick hedges which offer no shelter from the rain, only the solace that if it lasts long enough the hedge may grow around us and root us to the spot, so that we have no option but to abandon the kiwi fruit because we ourselves have now become plants. When I came back from teaching in Japan, and before I trained as a teacher in New Zealand, I worked at Te Papa, the Museum of New Zealand, for a little while, as one of the educators, as one of the people who worked in the kids' centres, um, looking after those areas and teaching kids about various parts of the museum and answering questions from the public. Now I did make a good go of this, and there were some parts of the job that I was reasonably good at. But I also did tend to get a little bit distracted by some of the monotony of the job as well as some of the things that I wanted to be doing a little bit more than manning the desk in the Tipapa Discovery Centres. Museum Misfit OK, do a horse, said Aaron, the first interviewer. The best whinny I could muster fell a touch flat after my mosquito which had clearly impressed them. Okay, how about a helicopter? Uh, toka toka tucker Just passable, but enough to progress. What do you think qualifies you for a position as a host here at the museum? asked Fiona, the second interviewer. Well, I already have experience teaching in Japan. I'd like to go on and teach high school one day. Mentioning a different future job here might have been a misstep. Perhaps it would have been better to say I was looking for meaningful work, a sense of worth from teaching others. At least I knew better than to say, I just desperately need some paid work. We finished up and got to handshakes. Fiona went all in on her grip, overpowering my soft medium squeeze, so I applied an iron vice to Aaron's knuckles which cracked like marbles in a bag. Oh wow, that's quite the shake, Aaron said, wincing. Oh, uh, sorry, Fiona outgripped me, I said. No one knows how to shake hands, at least not me. They offered me the job later that day. Aaron was the boss on paper, but Fiona was the real boss. This was just as well, since Aaron seemed to be away a lot. Mostly at home, looking after his cat, which was either exceptionally sick or needy. At any rate, more important than his director job. Breaks and shifts were timed to the second. I became a chronic clock watcher, cowed by the second hand smashing through. Time just never let up. I shared many of my break slots with Claire. She was a talker. My boyfriend and I like to pretend we're inexperienced lovers and gnash our teeth together when we kiss, she told me on my first day. The job was to look after areas of the museum set up specifically for children. There was joy in the work, if you were open to it. On weekend mornings, we'd host birthday parties for younger kids. Based on the desired theme, I'd don fairy wings or a pirate hat and be an entertainer for an hour. I have written feedback evidence that I was pretty good at this side of the job. In the nature area, kids would shriek with delight as they piled into the replica whale heart. These spaces had no do-not-touch signs, which was a relief for parents anxious about their little one sticking a pencil through a Colin McCann. But cynicism crept in. I was a glorified security guard in a garish red shirt. I'd tidy up the mess over and over. I'd tell people where the toilets were. There were vast canyons of time when no one was around followed by flash floods of school holiday activity which would subside quickly, leaving only the debris. It was all or nothing. I preferred the nothing. I tried to be upbeat when people asked about the giant squid, but to me it looked like a shriveled piece of stitched up jerky. Like most jobs, it was what you make it, but mostly I didn't make it all that much. The factory shift nature of the breaks and changeovers ground me down. You'd just get to the staff room and then you'd have to leave again. There were passive-aggressive standoffs if you relieved someone of their shift late, or vice versa. After talking to strangers for hours, you'd try to get a bit of quiet and then Claire would sit down beside you. We don't use towels, Claire would say. We put our clothes on straight out of the shower. There was a computer at each post. I think they were for helping with visitor inquiries, the meaningful work. I started using them to play online chess, which was a double waste. Neither the job nor the chess received my full attention, and I didn't improve it either. Excuse me, where's the cafe? Someone would ask. One moment, I'm in check. I was floored, but at least I turned up. An antihero? No, that's too charitable. Other workers would suddenly fall sick on Saturday and Sunday mornings. One left a message at 2am on a Sunday proclaiming dire sickness, with the sounds of a house party pulsing in the background. They took away the internet, eventually. It's possible they worked out that one guy was playing a level of online chess not required for basic duties, but it's more likely they noticed everyone else was on Facebook. Now what would we do to fill the void, How would we distract ourselves from the music mixing machine on Level 3, which played refrains from the Fat Freddy's drop song, Roadie, again and again and again? The regret when you leave seems inescapable, no matter what the job. You're quitting, which casts an unfavourable light. The rest of the squad feels aggrieved that your decision to leave devalues theirs to stay. You realise on your last day that it's what you make it means you are the one who makes the work meaningful, not the other way around. It's about the ethos you bring to it, and your ethos really needs some work. I'm sure you'll make a better go of it than me, fellow museum workers, in spite of no internet and that song on an infinite loop. Lots of companies these days use online collaboration tools like Google Docs to draft material and manage comments and revisions. And particularly in Google Docs, you can see if someone is in the document you're working in on the top right with their little avatar there. And I find that sometimes there are people who are there in the long term. They are there for a very long time. You might open a document every day for a fortnight a month and then they're there. And so this is a list, uh, you know, proposing some reasons why they might be always in that Google Doc. (music) Reasons people are always in that Google Doc. 1. They have multiple windows open, each with so many tabs they can no longer see what each contains. They have never closed a Google Doc, let alone any other Doc. Their computer is a slave to the web browser and does little else apart from run the fan to support all the tabs. They probably don't ever recall opening the Google Doc and could certainly never find it. 2. They are stubborn serial procrastinators and refuse to close that tab with the Google Doc in it until they have finished reading, writing or commenting. They open it for 10 seconds every day, can't be bothered, and just put another window or tab over the top of it until the next day. 3. They are watching you work. I was once doing some freelance work, and as I was writing some copy in real time, my client was writing underneath it, I like where you're going with this. Well-meaning, but a little off-putting. 4. They have grown impatient with waiting for you to finish something for them, and they know which docks you hang out in, And so they are now spectating in your Google Doc just to let you know that they're there and still waiting. Five, you invited one person to look at the Google Doc even though it wasn't quite done so they could see your progress. But then that person invited a dozen more and then each of those dozen invited another dozen until the number of confused document lurkers has scaled exponentially. Most are likely wondering about the significance of this particular document into which they have been invited and why indeed they are here. 6. They are the owner of that Google Doc and you are the one who is guilty of any or all of the previous items. Okay, that concludes episode 5 of the Without a Hitch podcast, SMOCO. Thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate you making the time to have a listen. Please feel free to subscribe and we will see you next time. Okay, bye.